Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3RRR. We've got an hour of science for you on this uh, day of religious holiness. In the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning. Morning. I don't know about the holiday, but I had a, a fortified, enriched, sugary, sweet bun with a, some funny line on top of it with some <laughs> butter this morning. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah. you know, it's uh, you got to do it, right? I mean, it's, it's everywhere. You can't avoid it, but uh, I'll make care of that. I've just eaten my kids' chocolate while they were out of the room. Nothing wrong with that. I think that's totally fine. Folks, uh, some of the best nutritionists I know say you can only eat healthy 80% of the time. You've got to give yourself a little bit of time off. So they could be completely wrong. (laughs) So I'm going with that. (laughs) There's some Uh, nutritionists driving off the road while they're listening right now. What the hell? But uh, every now and then you've got to indulge a little bit. I think that's uh, reasonable. Liv's uh, in here. She's doing her Twitter feed. So if you're following along on Twitter because you haven't found the technology of radio, um, but you've got a phone, (laughs) that's all good. Uh, We have a number of guests on the show today, folks. We're going to be talking about some really interesting stuff a little bit later with an old buddy of mine who's come back on again to talk about their latest research, which is great in terms of um, intensive care units and what's done in some of the hospitals, which will be very cool. But on the line with us already, we have Gracie from uh, all the way from Texas. Good morning, Gracie. How are you going? Yes, good. How are you all? I'm, I'm good. How's life over there? What time is it? Good. It is 8 p.m. on Saturday night. Excellent. And you're rocking it by having a big Saturday night out with us. Thank you. Yes. So excited. Also on the line from the University of Wollongong is Georgia Watson. Sorry, Georgia. Welcome back to Triple R. Hi, Shane. It's great to be here. Now, you uh, last time we spoke to you, you were examining um, moss from Antarctica and... We were talking about how you know just a few inches of moss is like a you know a forest in terms of diversity. Yeah, absolutely. The moss are a brilliant little ecosystem down in Antarctica. Yeah. Now the big thing for you, of course, is that um, you you are part of the program they're funded called Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future. Just remind us on what exactly is happening under that fund. Yeah. So I am part of Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future. That's an uh, a program funded by the Australian Research Council and we're a whole bunch of different universities all across Australia and a few other international partners as well. Um, We're starting to get together in person, which is really lovely now. Um, And we work on different scientific research, law research, statistics, um, environmental practice, all kinds of different research on how we can make really good decisions about protecting Antarctica and knowing how the ecosystems and the environments down there are changing under climate change with um, ozone depletion um, and with humans down there walking around running stations. So how we can make really good decisions to keep Antarctica protected. Yeah, it's interesting. Is there any good news stories with Antarctica at the moment? I mean, every single time I see something on, on social media or whatever else, it seems to be like, you know, far from good, um, you know, a lot of changes occurring. But is there some good stuff that, that's happening down there at the moment? You're right. There has been quite a bit of doom and gloom climate news coming from Antarctica recently. Mm. And that's just unfortunately where we're at with climate change at the moment. But I think always the good news story with Antarctica 
is the brilliant people we have working down there and working on keeping it protected and safe and getting the word out to everyone else that Antarctica is worth saving because it keeps the rest of us cool. Yeah, keeps yeah, especially here in Melbourne. Uh, you're up in Wollongong, but you know, in Melbourne, it's a, there's an Antarctic breeze today. Let me tell you, it was sub ten degrees this morning. Oh, that's chilly. Yeah, chilly. Now, the big uh, news for you, of course, is that you have been selected to be part of the Homeward Bound program for this year. Um, tell us how did so. First of all, what is the Homeward Bound program? I think we've talked about this almost every year that the program's been on the show. But just to remind people, what's the program about? Yeah, so Homeward Bound is a leadership program for women with a background in STEM, so science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, Um, and not necessarily working in STEM at the moment, people who have that STEM education and have gone on to other things as well. Um, It's about training people up to have the capacity, have the skills um, and have the support network to step into leadership roles and And really help out on the table where decisions are being made about our climate, about our future. Um, We know that diversity in leadership teams is better for everyone. It's better for Mm. the people on the team and it's better for the people who the team is making decisions on behalf of. So, yeah, it's to help women get into those places where typically have been um, held by men and, and people in power, but to diversify, bring different perspectives and Bring different ideas to the table for a better future. Yeah. Now the the trip at, trips at the end of the year to Antarctica. How long is it for? So yeah, I'll be on the trip at the end of next year. So I have okay. a little bit of time to wait. Um, but it's a three week intensive leadership camp almost, where everyone from all over the world gets together. So in my cohort, there's 110 people from 25 different countries, all kinds of. Um, fields and disciplines of research coming together. Um, So that'll be a really wonderful trip to come together in a really remote and isolated place to to just focus on on getting the work done. Yeah. Now it's by boat, yeah? You don't... There's not a cushy, you know, flight down there. You're going to... Because I hear the boat ride down there is not too pretty at times. Yeah, I've I've heard that as well from a few colleagues. Yep, it's a a boat over the west on the peninsula of Antarctica. So um, I've spoken on the past... In, on this show in the past that I've flown over Antarctica mm. and I've flown and landed on the ice as well. So this time going via the boat, will be. I'm really excited. I'm really excited to see the icebergs float by and see penguins and seals. Yeah, yeah. no, that sounds very cool. Now, um, in terms of, like you said, that's two years away, but there's a program of activity between now and then, isn't there? What, what happens over the next two years? Yeah, so my program will be starting in a few weeks' time. It's formally launching in May for me. Um, The last cohort have just finished up, but we had a little bit of an overlap. So one of the seminars um, started this week for the last cohort, and we, the the new cohort, Homeward Bound 8, which is the one I'm on, we got to join in that seminar. And it was really lovely to see people on Zoom. There was, you know, pages and pages of faces all from all over the world um, joining together to listen to seminars by experts. And so just having a little taster already has been fantastic. So the next 12 months will be the leadership program where we'll meet, um, I think it's every fortnight it will be. So gives us a bit of time to um, learn something new and then process it for a few weeks and then come back together again and, and learn some more. Now, do you need bag carriers? I mean, this is one of the things that I'm very interested <laughs> in personally. Like, even if they're not involved in the rest of the program for the trip to Antarctica, is there a requirement for people of, you know, any gender to participate as a bag carrier? You know, 
I, I do hear this occasionally <laughs> with uh, Antarctica, that someone's always willing to hop in the luggage or, or carry it along. I tell you, one of the best ways to get to Antarctica is as a tradie or oh, a really? chef. Yeah. So, I mean, scientists, that's the point of um, Australia's uh, place in Antarctica is for peace and science. So we, we go down there, the Australian bases are maintained for peace and for science. But the tradies, there's a lot of them to keep the place ticking along. So if you really want to go, maybe maybe retrain as a plumber. Well, okay? I can. I, I was just at a big <laughs> hard, hardware store yesterday, and I've, I've been drilling all all Saturday. I'm I'm damn good at drilling holes. I don't know if they're in. They need okay. holes drilled, but I can do that. I can't put stuff together. Yeah, maybe not... the filling holes is the issue there. <laughs> yeah. But... Yeah. <laughs> but you know, if the ice coring. How hard can it be, right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm all for that. Um, and in terms of uh, the trip itself, I mean, this is not a free trip for those who go. They have to um, build some resources. So you're crowdfunding to help you go. Tell us about that we've got there's two or three people listening including my mum so there's a chance <laughs> but um tell us about the crowdfunding you're doing and and what you're trying to achieve there yeah so um it is a bit of a an expense obviously we want all of the facilitators in this program to be paid a lot of the facilitators and trainers are women who have brilliant expertise in this area of um capacity building and really um, who understand the, the challenges that women go through in stepping into leadership roles. So we obviously want them to be paid for their time. Um, so there is a cost associated with the program. I'm trying to raise initially for the 12-month leadership program, I'm raising 10 grand. Um, later on down the track when our trip is confirmed, you know, pending pandemics, international yep. border closures, we haven't locked that one in yet. So um down the track, I'll be fundraising for that as well. But at the moment, I'm trying to raise ten grand. I'm almost at three in just a few weeks, so I really appreciate. I've had so many um, family members, colleagues, radio presenters chip in <laughs> <laughs> to my to my fundraising, which is on um, the Chuffed website. So um, that's GW does HB eight. So I'm Georgia Watson doing Homeward Bound eight. Um, if you wanted to look that up, that would be fantastic. I've got a couple of um, surprises and, and perks available for anyone who does chip in and wants um, something in return, ap apart from my eternal gratitude. And I think the important thing to know there is, um, even though there is a, a cost associated with this program, women don't do this alone. You know, if you support one woman in this program, you are actually supporting a community because women mm. do tend to bring people along with them. Yep. And I think um, the other thing for you that's important is you haven't taken the traditional research path, uh, as, as we discussed, I think, last time. And my recollection is you did your Bachelor of Honours and now you're in the research role and you didn't go through the the traumatic PhD experience that a lot of people go through, but but still you're you're at this point where you're doing research, you know you're you're heading off to Antarctica hopefully you know in in 24 months and and all of that off the back of of a, a bachelor's degree of honours, right? Yeah, so that is a, a good point, Shane. I think um, that is something that differentiates me at Wollongong. I'm, I'm really lucky to have a couple of other people who have been through previous cohorts of Homeward mm. Bound. Um, a lot of them are, have been PhD candidates or are in academic roles. Um, my role at the University of Wollongong is as a professional staff member, so I'm hired as a research officer, um, I'm on a short-term contract, and um, as is the case for a lot of people in the university sector, 
Um, so yeah, I, I did my bachelor's. I've been working for about six years um, in research. Um, and I think I do have that capability to lead from a professional staff role and I do have a sphere of influence and I'm really fortunate to have people who come to me seeking advice or wanting to know something that they think, you know, Georgia has the skills to research this and, and find out something and they trust me with that, um, which I'm so lucky and, and grateful for. Um, yeah, I, I am an early career researcher and I don't quite have the backing of an academic um salary <laughs> so i am yeah crowdfunding yep. it's really important to me to raise this money yeah look it's great and i think it's it's also important for people to, to see in you the the value of these dual roles where you know people have scientific training but also the the professional stuff sort of background as well and those roles are becoming more and more potent and important um especially mm-hmm. as so many people are sort of falling out of academia due to a lack of places and ending up still in institutions working with that academic background or, or scientific background in other roles and that that makes you more more valuable in my view if you've got both both of those things behind you so georgia good luck um you you keep earning money for uh for the homeward bound trip i'll start re um training as a plumber and i'll see you down there in 24 months if if that doesn't work out i mean obviously i'm the only one who'll fail there uh then it would be great you could be our sort of you know foreign correspondent from from the deep 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 southern southern part of the hemisphere and um, wouldn't that be fantastic that would be fantastic you you wouldn't know this but years ago and some of them may be listening now but years ago um, people would take tapes of this show, as in what I mean by that is audio tapes before we had, you know, all the digital stuff. People would record the show on audio tapes and they would take it down to Antarctica by boat. And three months later, um, they would listen to the show. And then three months later, I'd get some feedback on what we'd done right or wrong. And uh, oh. that, that was the way it used to work back in the day. So I think wow. now, you know, communication is a little bit better now. Hopefully the delay is just a couple of seconds. But uh, yeah. we, we've always I'll had this connection. Tweet. So, yeah, you'll be able to, you'll be able to send us some, um, some stuff and we can have maybe a live chat while you're down there. Brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. Georgia Watson, thanks so much for being on Einstein and Gogo again. Good luck with the uh, the crowdfunding, and um, hopefully you'll get a lot out of the Homeward Bound program. I know many people who've done it, and they've all spoken very highly. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Folks, that was Georgia Watson from the University of Wollongong. We're going to take a break now for some music, and when we come back, we'll be uh, speaking with a clinician. Three, triple, Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. That track was by Martin Frawley. It was called uh, Given Everything from Triple R's Album of the Week. And now in the studio with us is Associate Professor Yagish Lankadeva. He is the theme head of systems neuroscience, the head of translational cardiovascular and renal research group, the National Heart Foundation future leader, research fellow, principal honorary research fellow in the Department of Critical Care at the Melbourne Medical School, systems neuroscience theme, Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. Yagish, you've been here before. The list is getting longer. What's going on? Yeah, sorry about that, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's great to hear. I mean, yeah, to be fair, most, most clinicians have a long list. I get that. I just, I just put my name in triple R. That's it. Uh, these days, <laughs> keep it short. But um, you uh, look—you've been doing some really interesting stuff around sepsis, which is one of the reasons I 
thought we're going to get you back on because, first of all, congratulations, you just got a new Medical Research Future Fund grant. Tell us a bit about that grant. How much did you get? What's it to cover? Yeah, so we got uh, $4.9 million for that grant. Uh, so we're very fortunate uh, to be one of the groups that were funded. Um, so the purpose of that grant really is to understand the mechanisms of action of this new vitamin C formula that we've been using, which is a pH balance formulation of vitamin C, which is sodium ascorbate, mm-hmm. for treatment of sepsis. So it's to understand the mechanisms and then run mechanism-guided clinical trials across mainland Australia. Yeah, amazing. So, I mean, and that's that's a decent-sized grant. I mean, that, that'll get you a few runs on the board. I mean, it sounds, for people listening, it sounds like a huge amount of money, but actually when you break it down, is it five years? It's a five-year five program. Years. You break it down over five years and you start paying salaries and you start buying equipment. It's it's not huge, but it's a it's a solid amount for some decent work. Let's let's talk about sepsis. What what is sepsis? When does it occur? You know, give us the rundown. Um, sepsis is a dysregulated response to an underlying infection, which in turn causes uh, multiple organ failure and death. So it's a leading cause of death in intensive care units, both in Australia and around the world, right. currently killing about 11 million people every year. Okay. Uh, and due to our aging population and increasing incidence of um, antibiotic resistance, the case of sepsis continues to rise. Right. And how do you know that you have sepsis in a patient? I mean, what are the signs? So someone, presumably this often happens after surgery. Is that most common? Um, I think 30% of the cases uh, can be after, it's hospital acquired, but 70% of the cases are community acquired. Wow. And one of the, tricky parts there is, I mean, you know, it's very difficult to know that you have this because it starts with an infection, you feel quite ill, you have fever, you're, and then you start taking some antibiotics and you're at home. So by the time you're brought into the hospital setting, it's well and truly underway and you're right. quite critically ill. So I think part of the problem here is a late diagnosis of this condition. Yeah. Um, yep. Interesting. And is is this an infection that's local or is it like an infection through the blood? I mean, what, what does that look like? Yeah, no, uh, usually it starts from a local source, I guess. Um, it could be a fu- fungal infection. It could be a lung infection. It could be a infection in the gut, I guess. Um, or, and then what happens is it kind of spreads around the body when your body's immune system cannot battle this in a localized mm-hmm. source. It spreads systemically. And that's when it starts doing damage to its, your vital organs. Your blood pressure falls, compromising blood supply to vital organs like the brain, the kidney, and those yeah. organs start failing. I always find it fascinating with these things. Like everything in biology seems to have a purpose, you know. And, and I think with, with something like sepsis, it doesn't seem to have a good purpose because it kills you quickly, right? I mean, do we know why? Like what, what drives it? Like, Well, I think it really depends on how your immune system handles an infection. I think that's why different people react very differently. I mean, some people might knock this off after a localized infection, but others could, it could just spread around the body and then cause a lot of damage. And I think also you got to think about people who are immunocompromised in our community. Some people have multiple comorbidities uh, like, you know, diabetes, HIV, cancer, those type of patients are particularly more vulnerable. So the high-risk groups are really the newborns yep. and then the elderly with right. multiple comorbidities. Yeah, indeed. Now, what's the traditional sort of mechanism for dealing with sepsis? What do we do? So the current, uh, I guess, uh, treatments for sepsis in intensive care units is large, largely palliative or supportive in nature. So start, current state-of-the-art treatments is to give them fluids, blood pressure-maintaining drugs, in worst cases put them through dialysis, mechanically ventilate them. Um, so what they're trying to do is then resolve the infection, so remove the infection source control, uh, with the hope that the organs then recover afterwards. Right. 
So there's really no targeted treatments for sepsis because it's very complex and the pathology has remained elusive. So you really need the body to do the job. In. Well, in this case, yeah, yeah, with the support of intensive care treatments. Yeah. yeah. So just to, uh, along my engineering naive questions, so this isn't something that it's not mass antibiotics or, or really next generation antibiotics because it might not even be a bacterial infection. And by the time it's gone across the whole body, it's well past the point of antibiotics being effective anyway. Well, I think broad spectrum antibiotics is part of standard of care. But again, because you know, patients just don't respond to this. Um, and I think as our cases of antibiotic resistance grows and grows every year, uh, this problem continues to rise. Yeah. Now, you've been investigating a new methodology here to, to deal with sepsis based on vitamin C. I mean, we all, we've all heard of vitamin C. I think uh, I, was, I, was, I was brought up in the 70s and the 80s, so, you know, they said you should take this every day. And I was like, mm, no, is that... Is that true? Is that is that someone trying to sell me stuff? I, I you you know, I'm always a bit always a bit cautious. With you it. didn't just get told to eat an orange like I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I never went on long sea voyages, so I didn't take oranges. We well, uh, sauerkraut. That's yeah. what that's what saved the British Navy from scurvy. <laughs> sauerkraut. Um, but vitamin C. I mean, what's the sort of method of action there? How do you how did you come across vitamin C as an option for? For sepsis. So as you probably know, Shane, I've been researching this ever since I finished my PhD. So Mm. since 2013, we've been trying multiple therapies. And I think the thing with just using a drug that has one action is that in sepsis is very different because it's a systemic disease. Different mechanisms are causing dysfunction in different areas of your body. So we really wanted to then trial a drug that has multimodal actions. And I think what, you know, ascorbate or the compound in vitamin C does have multimodal actions. It's, got, it's an innate immune cell stimulant. It helps with the microcirculation. It helps with blood pressure maintenance. Uh, it's anti-inflammatory. So there are many actions that could be beneficial for a systemic condition like sepsis. So that's why we wanted to use this, but we couldn't use it in its native form because it comes as ascorbic acid. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's been usually used in human sepsis is ascorbic acid. And the problem with that is critically ill patients have a compromised buffering capacity. Okay. Their base excess is already depleted. So if you add titratable acids into that setting, they cannot handle that acid load. Right. So we really wanted to create a compound that's pH balanced. So the compound we are using is the sodium salt of vitamin C, which is sodium ascorbate, which's got a neutral pH. So it's really good to kind of bring the benefits and keep away the harmful effects. Wow. I mean, that's, that's so fascinating. That's something that normally would just kill these patients as in a slightly different form as potentially the, the saving grace for them. In, in terms of presumably there is also an, an element of dose. And how do you know how much to to give a patient and how relative is that to the point in the sort of infection state they're in? Mm. No, I think because um, the infection and multi-organ dysfunction is quite well underway when we are treating it, it mm-hmm. was very important for us to come up with exactly that answer. What dose? So we needed to use very high doses, so in excess of 3 gram per kilogram is what we used. But again, as you mentioned, you can't eat that amount. It can't be absorbed through your intestine. So we had to give it directly into the bloodstream. So it's one of those things you can, you should only do in a hospital setting, not at home, <laughs> and uh, with close monitoring of your acid-based statuses and blood yep. gases. And so that. don't go down to your local pharmacy and buy yourself five bottles of uh, vitamin C tablets Abs- right now. Bad Abs- move, people. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. So by adding the, the sodium salt, while you're not adding an acid, you're still adding something that can affect ph but you're not asking the body to have to buffer the acidity 
So you still have to monitor that because I guess it you could have the pH blood pH rise instead of go down. Or um, in our hands, at least in uh, preclinical and clinical research, blood pH hasn't really changed with this uh, formulation because okay. it's about pH is about seven point two. Okay. Um, however, something that we need to keep an eye on is the sodium because it's sodium ascorbate. So mm-hmm. patients with pre-existing chronic kidney disease, late stages, might uh, not be able to handle the sodium load. So at least in clinical research, we found that sodium does go up. So what we did was the great point about this program is that bi-directional research. You see something in the clinic, you bring that back to the lab. We trialed different optimization maneuvers with dosages, and then we mitigated the sodium effect. And now we are taking that new formula into the clinical trials moving forward. Yeah, it's wild. Now, if everyone, you're not careful, someone's going to call you an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> now, everyone knows, uh, everyone knows who listens to this show that my memory is absolutely garbage. Um, but I have this vague recollection that you used to do a lot of kidney work. Is that... Is that the case? Am I remembering that correctly? Uh, look, um, yes. So kidney injury is what I wanted to prevent or reverse in this case in sepsis and also with heart surgery. I'm right. always, you know, I was working on the kidneys. But one of the things I didn't really, if I was to be very honest with you, imagine a therapy could reverse other dysfunction in other right. ways. I was really trying to solve the kidney injury issue here because 50% of the patients with sepsis develop kidney injury, right. one of the main causes of death. So, But what when we gave this, because we were monitoring the brain, the heart, the blood vessel function, and kidneys, we saw recovery in all those organs, which was quite, I guess, you know, it, it was amazing. Surprising. It was yeah, surprising, yeah, yeah. but, you know, that really gave us hope that this could really make a real impact on patients' and, lives. And what impact are you seeing at the moment? Because obviously you're starting to do trials, and, you know, this is now funded well, you've got things on the go. Are you are you seeing this impact in patients? I mean, I know it's early days in that sense, but what are you seeing? I think last I came to the studio, you probably remember we treated a uh, critical ill COVID-19 patient mm, with sepsis yeah. who was unresponsive to standard of care. So we gave this as compassionate use, and that patient yep. had a remarkable recovery, following which, with the preclinical mechanistic data, we started a phase one uh, clinical trial at Austin Health, and we finished patient recruitment last December. Uh, so I can't give away too much information, but all I can say is uh, results have been very promising. Yeah. However, since then, we have actually brought the formulation back, as I mentioned, optimized it further so we can take it to multi-center clinical trials with a better formula. Yeah, it's wild stuff. This is, all right, it's pretty remarkable about sepsis, but this just seems pretty remarkable about a way to stimulate the immune system. I mean, have you got an immunologist knocking on your door every day going, oh my gosh, why does this work? Could this work? And in, in, in understanding other parts of how our immune system works. And like the implications seem, and I know we're going to have ourselves because we've still got the trials and to see how it goes, but it would seem it, it has a, a much broader implication to immunology in general. I'm really glad you brought that up. And I think that's why bringing this group of people for this program is really important. I mean, Peter Doherty Institute's very much involved, like mm-hmm. Dr. Laura Cook and Professor Antonio Roculli. Um, so their job really is to find out how it's acting on the immune system. And in our studies, at least in um, animal studies, we can see that when we give this to animals with bacterial infections, it actually clears the bacteria. So you're right. If this has an immune effect, it could, the implications of this could, could go beyond sepsis. Yep. Yeah, it's wild. Now, one last question for you, Gish, with regards to, you know, you're, I mean, one of the things I know is, of course, always with you is um, you, you're part of the, the Fleury Institute for, you know, which focuses so much on the brain. Um, there's so many medications that are hard to get across the blood-brain barrier. Where do we sit with this? Because obviously these infections can be devastating mm-hmm. to the brain as well. I mean, how does this treatment sort of, 
I suppose, access the brain. Are there the same problems with, with this as there are with many other sort of chemical form- formulations, or are we somehow bypassing that? Oh, well, uh, glad you asked that question too. So there is transporters on the blood-brain barrier that transport ascorbate to the brain. Right. And we've been looking at the brain quite in detail in the preclinical work anyway, and the brain tissue actually has ascorbate levels 80 times more than blood. Wow. In the cerebrospinal fluid, we got four times more than blood. So this is actually very important to the brain. And in uh, our ongoing studies, we are seeing a rapid reversal of brain dysfunction in sepsis. And I think if this works, we are also working with Professor Lachlan Miles at Austin Health, who's a cardiac anesthetist, actually looking at this in the context of cardiac surgery, heart surgery as well, because cognitive dysfunction is quite common after that as well. So uh, I think it's fascinating. I think we're just skimming the surface of what this is doing to many organs. And I think the brain is going to be a big focus going forward. Yeah. Look, Yikish, this is wild stuff. Every time you come in here, you bring in some wild stuff, which is uh, a thing I love is when I get – and this is not always the case. I'm going to throw it out, but not all clinicians understand how science – scientific thinking actually works and whenever i talk to you it feels like you're going through the stages of scientific process very carefully and i think that really pays off because if you do it that way and you understand mechanisms and you understand you know the various pathways involved and you understand why for example it does it does have this importance in the brain relative to other parts of the body and so forth then all of a sudden you start to have understanding of why why this might be a useful technique rather than just you know throwing out chemicals randomly and hoping for the best so i think you know you're doing great work it's great to have you back on the show and and good luck with this i hope the trials go well and sounds like this will be a fairly broadly applicable um you know technique across the world soon so thank you very much i and i really like to thank our team really this group of wonderful scientists and clinicians coming together from multiple institutes and hospitals this is only possible because everybody's working as a team and that gives me more happiness than anything working with like-minded scientists and clinicians so again thank you very much you're very welcome yugish thanks for being on triple r folks we're going to take a break for some important station announcements and when we come back we're going to be talking with uh, gracie from texas on my favorite subject space uh star trek Oh. oh, you thought I was going to say science, but I... <laughs> hey, yeah, space normally is at the top of yeah, this race. It was yeah. a good guess. Good it was guess, a good guess, a uh, reasonable yeah. guess, but uh, no, Gracie knows where I'm coming from. She knows where it all started for me. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you're listening to Three Triple Fix. Three Triple Welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on this Easter Sunday. We never, we never stop broadcasting science. I always well, say. I mean, technically we do for a summer break, but not yeah. during the holidays. <laughs> not during the holidays. And every year I say, it's a science show. It must happen. And then usually on that Sunday morning, I'm like, oh, my God, what do they agree to? And then no, but once I get here, I'm all good. Uh, Gracie, there's a whole lot of technology that we have because of Star Trek. What are you going to talk about? Yes, I'm super excited to talk about this with you. Uh, I know it's one of your favorite topics of discussion. I also really love this show. Uh, so I'm super excited to geek out with you. If for some reason a listener is not familiar with Star Trek, you're missing out, <laughs> first of all. <laughs> but we'll do a little bit of explanation for you and maybe to jog some memories of some non-Star Trek fans out there, perhaps. Uh, but basically, the show started in 1966. Um, so we'll mostly be talking about the original series that did start in 1966 and some of these technologies that were extremely futuristic at the time that we now have today. Um, and a lot of that is due to uh, people who invented the technology crediting Star Trek being their influence, you know, kind of growing up um, mm. and even as adults. Uh, and I know uh, this show means a lot to me. Uh, whenever I left off for college, my 
dad and I have this ritual that whenever I come home, we always watch Star Trek. And we started at the very original series, and now we're through Deep Space Nine. Jeez, so that's it's a taken lot of us, trips. you know, 10 years now to get here since I started college. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then um, my dog's name is Riker. So, you know, there's just, I know you had a dog named Riker. So a there's cat. just a lot had of, a cat. you know, oh, yeah. you had a cat. I'm sorry. Yeah. It was a yeah, cat yeah. named Riker. Yeah, it's very sad. Um, He's long gone. He's long gone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the actual the actual character outlived the cat, which is not surprising. Cats don't live that yeah. long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, what's your favorite Star Trek technology? Do you have one like off the top of your head? Uh, that's turned into a real technology, or can it be a technology that hasn't been invented yet? Sure, anything. I mean, for me, I really need the transporter because I'm not. I don't like yes. driving around. I like traffic. So, if that was a thing for me, I'd just I'd come and visit you later today. You know, we'd have a have a coffee, have a drink. Yes, yes, definitely. I don't know if I could get on board with the transporter. Let me tell you why. There were too many instances in the episodes where somebody got scrambled or like fused with somebody else or just something bad happened there. Well, doesn't so that, I don't know if I could take the risk. But. Doesn't that feel like, like something developed by uh, the IT sector? It works fine, but every once in a while you have to reboot it and everything yeah. fails, you know? But that'd be okay. See, yes. I'd, just, I'd just make sure that whenever I was transporting, I was transporting with Harrison Ford. So if there was an accident and two people got combined... I'd actually end up getting getting better off. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's a good way to, you know, reduce that <laughs> risk for sure. I don't know that I could do it. But yeah, that's definitely something that's not even, you know, uh, in the realm now of what's being worked on, I'm sure. Uh, but there are a few things. So one thing uh, that a lot of people bring up that's pretty common is communicators. Mm. So these were the, the things that in the original series, they basically looked like flip phones. Um, and then kind of progressing through the Star Trek uh canon if you will they they kind of progressed to like these little badges and like the, the communication was actually on the badge and they could just tap their badge you know and have communication with somebody um so martin cooper was actually the man that was credited with the invention of the first handheld phone uh and he's actually stated that his prototypes for that first device were actually inspired by the original star trek series so that's, that's wild. pretty cool yeah i remember when i got yeah. my first motorola flip phone and the only limitation was I didn't have enough friends to call. Yeah. Because I just wanted to flip that sucker open every five minutes and start using it Captain Kirk style. It was wild. Yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And even like those, uh, how it's it's progressed through the series of, uh, you know, even just being like a tap. What does that remind you of? I mean, we have like Apple watches yeah. now that you can just tap the watch and, you know, speak to somebody on your wrist. So, yeah. So yeah. there's a more yeah. mundane one. I, I, I wonder if it was inspired with some automatic sliding doors. Well, it makes like yes. it 66. I yes, don't think they were a common thing. Yes, that one's actually my favorite that's on the list that we're talking about today. Uh, yeah, so automatic sliding doors are now obviously super common ways of like entering and exiting anything, like pretty much any building you could think of. Um, and yeah, you're right. This actually was not a thing until 1980. So a whole 15 years after that original series first aired, yeah. uh, which is crazy to think about. In fact, some of the best video you can find online, if you look up, um, you know, sort of goof-ups that happened in the original series, it's where the people who are pulling the doors apart got the timing wrong and they would walk into them. Sorry, I, I digress, but that always just delights me to watch those old videos because they weren't real sliding doors. They actually had physical prop people, you know, pulling them apart and pushing them together and then putting in the whoosh sound afterwards. And every now and then, someone wouldn't do their job and so one of the actors would just yes. walk straight into them. I know, yeah. I'm cruel, I'm cruel, but uh, it was funny. It was funny. 
Yeah, I do wonder about that. Like, did the did the actors just get super upset and just, you know, want to cycle through, like, the door pullers? I don't know. but <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. And then another one that we could talk about, uh, tablets. So a lot of people in the Star Trek series had things called pads or mm. personal access display devices. So basically what it looks like now is it probably looks so common to us. They're just walking around, you know, looking down at what looks like an iPad. But iPads didn't come out until 2010. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, well, well after. Um, and there's a lot of technology we could talk about as well. So things even like Bluetooth headphones and earbuds. Uh, Lieutenant Uhura uh, was actually uh, the first uh, one seen using, you know, wireless earpieces or wireless headphones to communicate uh, with other people on the ship, uh, which now, of course, I'm using a wireless uh, headset. Well, it has the capability to be wireless. Um, and so these things are just so common now that it's it's crazy to think about these weren't even, you know, a thought back then yeah. beyond uh, a sci-fi yeah, I hadn't Concept. thought of the earpiece, the earpiece one, because that's um, when Michelle Nichols had that, you know, that was so iconic back in the 60s for her to have that in her ear all the time. But yeah, it was completely wireless. We didn't really think about that. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And then with that, too, uh, voice activated AI. So there are a lot of scenes where they're sitting on the ship, you know, and they'll they'll say something like a voice command, and then the AI answers their question. And of course, artificial intelligence AI was not even a thought. Uh, and then now what does that remind us of now? Of course, Alexa, Siri, now we have all of these technologies that are commercialized to do this. Yeah. One of the things I find amazing is um, a lot of the images of planets and so forth, because we... We had barely got into orbit at the time in 1966, you know, like it was early days, the camera systems were bad, but they had images of all, all of that, you know, they had to come up with that and imagine what that might look like very early on. Right. Yeah, definitely. Did that, I can't remember what year we had, uh, like the first picture of the Earth. Yeah, it when was, was that? It was early 60s, I think. Um, okay. I don't remember that, was actually. Was the I Galileo that. probes? I think they were a little later, but um, but you know Sputnik obviously and so forth was very early on there. But that that only sent back a radio signal; it didn't take images and so forth. But actual humans right. humans in orbit, you know, that was Yuri Gagarin, right? And you know that's right. that's kind of around the same time, you know, a little earlier, but around the same time, it's not much difference. And and it yeah. wasn't like you know Yuri Gagarin took a hold of the video footage, sent it over to Paramount or whoever was doing CBS or whoever did Star Trek in the sixties, said here use this. You know they had to digitally do all that sort of stuff, which is kind of wild. Right, and it was so low budget at the time as mm. well. So if you go back and watch the original series, you can see, you definitely notice there are like all these different planets that they visit, right? But they all look essentially exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, they had very low budget to make all those sets as well. Yeah. So what other pieces of technology, uh, Gracie, any others? Yeah, so we have telepresence as well. So this is basically like holographic video conferencing. So kind of like Zoom or Skype now, but also like elevated. So now this almost kind of reminds me of like metaverse, mm. what they're trying to do with that of like, you know, virtual environments, virtual reality, things like that. Um, so beyond even video conferencing. But actually in 2008, uh, two companies called AT&T and Cisco actually partnered to bring the first like telepresence system. And so that's actually still active. So it basically combines video, audio, and then and lighting um, to kind of accomplish this. Mm. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's it. We also have a f we have a few more here. Yeah, yeah. I'm not Go sure how it. much time. Yeah, yeah, we, we have left, a couple of minutes. But... Yep. Go for it. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. So phasers are another thing. Uh, I always kind of played with these as a child in my mind. You know, make believe of like 
you know, running around and uh, eradicating aliens people you didn't like. like that. Yes. No, definitely not people. <laughs> Always aliens, right? So okay. just one step removed. Uh, but in modern days, you know, we have tasers. Uh, there are stun guns. But, you know, there's mace, uh, which is, I mean, kind of similar chemical spray. Uh, but a lot of these things uh, that we have now were kind of based on that initial uh, design for the phaser. Um, and so there was actually... Uh, for the tasers and the stun guns, you have to come into physical contact with somebody. So, of course, we don't have, you know, the full technology of a phaser yet to be able to, you know, essentially shoot a laser from a long way away. But uh, I'm sure people are working on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember uh, there was an incident when I was an undergraduate student, uh, first year uni at Melbourne Uni, where I may or may not have uh, poked a helium neon laser out of the window of the Redmond Barry building onto someone's chest in the architecture, the old architecture building, about 50 metres away. That may have happened. That may have been good aim if you did. Wow. Yeah, it was great aim. We were sitting on the bench, so uh, and that person may have, may have you know, presumably seen the Terminator films and freaked out. May have happened. Can't confirm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, seen too many movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, the last one I'll talk about before we wrap up, uh, universal translators. So there was this little ear pierce piece, basically, that they would put in their ear, and it would automatically translate whatever language the aliens were speaking into English. And so now, of course, we don't have anything quite that sophisticated yet, but we do, of course, have like things like dual lingo google translate uh, you know things on our phones that can automatically you know you take a picture of it it automatically translates the text for you even it doesn't even have to be spoken words so yeah. we're getting there i think i think there's some audio versions of that now too i think there are some audio apps that will translate the audio for you as well which is pretty wild i you know i, I always think you know when i go overseas i'll i'll learn the language try and learn the language which is like there's uh, just for the listeners out there, there's zero hope of me doing yeah, that. I'm really how, bad with languages. I was going to say, how's that working out for you? <laughs> Not so uh, good. I did well in Japan with that. I did well in Japan, but uh, generally speaking, bad with languages, good with maths. And I need I need the universal translator. I really do because culturally, I think it's important. It's very polite to you know try and try and speak in whatever language the country is you're in, wherever possible. And I, I remember once being in the south of France, and you know, I really needed some French. It was yeah. it was a tough gig. Would have used the Universal Translator extensively had it been available. Right, and I'm sure people could would be able to tell, right? Like even if we had Universal Translators, I'm sure they could tell. You know, whether you're actually trying to put in the effort or if it's just yeah. you know something feeding you the information. So yeah. I think that's always going to be kind of a, a cultural thing you know even whenever we have this technology yeah well there's some wild stuff that's come out and i think uh you're right about the automatic opening doors though that is a that's that's a wild one i think for me and and uh you see that everywhere now and it's just you know even some cars have it have you seen the cars where the, the back yes. opens up like like it's it's yeah that's, can't be bothered to lift the boot yourself i know you i'm know, not yeah. in that camp I, i'm actually quite happy to open, yeah. open it myself uh, we say boot means trunk Oh, okay, got it. I yeah. was a little confused. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's all good. Well, thank you, Gracie. I think, uh, well, you and I, you know, we're both big Star Trek fans, so we love all the technology and seeing the stuff. And it's amazing when you see uh, I've noticed in the latest series of Picard, you know, they have a lot of the displays and the display interaction panels are transparent. So you can see yeah. right through them. It's just this sort of, you know, all this idea of some, I think there was Google Glass, there's a few attempts at this over the years, but this will be the next big thing, right? Just glass and materials that have all the interactability with them without the sort of metal exterior and the, the, those, those other things. So it's nice to imagine where the technology will go, I think. Yes, exactly. 
Alrighty, uh, thank you, Gracie. We're going to be back in a minute with some news, folks, but uh, here's some important station announcements before we uh, get back to that. Three. Triple. Welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. And uh, sorry, I got carried away with the watery sounds in the background. Of very last soothing. Announcement. Very soothing. I don't uh, know if I have to pee now, but it was very soothing. <laughs> well, you've got seven minutes to wait, Dr. Ray. <laughs> <laughs> Not long at all. Uh, Grace is still online from Texas. Uh, we're going to jump into some news before the end of the show. Dr. Ray, what have you got? Sure. Uh, just quickly, this is a story I ran across um, about meteorites. And, you know, meteorites are – people look for them all the time, and there's a standard – there's like a standard toolkit to find out if a media, it is a meteorite or that's put out by the U.S. Geological Survey and universities. And, uh, and, and what's interesting is there's a little glitch in it. Not, most of the time when people find meteorites, they go, oh, is it magnetic? They put a magnet against mm. it. But um, so paleomagnetists, I didn't, that's a job, by the way, which sounds kind of awesome. Uh, when they study meteorites, they get excited when you can find old meteorites because particularly iron-containing ones because depending on where they're from, they can actually capture the state of magnetic fields of their origin. And particularly there are these old meteorites that they find that are commonly in the Sahara. I think it's just an easy place to find black rocks. Yep, yep. Um, where they're, they even call them black beauty meteorites because they're from four and a half billion years ago. They're the oldest rocks on, the, on, on Earth, and they're from Mars. Yeah. And so the idea is that they yep. could capture the magnetic field of Mars four and a half billion years ago. And back, that, back in the days when it had a good one. When it, when it had a good one. And that yeah. sounds exciting. But effectively, these meteorites are like magnetic hard drives. So it encodes weak magnetic data in it. Now, what do we know about a hard drive if you put it up against a rare earth magnet or a neodymium magnet? Well, you erase it. You erase it. Yeah. And so they run into a problem, and they realized this in 2011, excuse me, studying these black beauty meteorites, that they all had looked like they'd been in high magnetic fields, and they're like Mars, which wouldn't have that high of a magnetic field, till they realized it was part of the acquisition process. Oh, no. It's very common to text if the object is magnetic or not by putting it ne- a meteorite next to a magnet. Next to a magnet. So, yeah. they, so they find these great meteorites. And, and by the way, if you're not a paleomagnetist, it, it's not a big deal. It's only this one section of science that goes, oh, no, we're losing, like, all of this information about prehistoric Mars. And, and so um, they, were, they were a bit frustrated. And in 2002, a group out of MIT actually put out a paper saying, you know, it looks like these magnets are really destroying things because a, a hand magnet's 10,000 times stronger than the magnetic fields in there. And, and what they're trying to do is train scientists to move around this. And not do that. And so not every scientist is crazy about this. And if you're not a scientist and you're a meteorite hunter, even less interested sometimes because it's really about the payday for the meteorite. And and so they went, well, how can we do this? And so they they actually just put a paper out uh, this week in Journal Geophysical Research Planets showing they used basalt, so an earth-made mineral that's high in iron, showing that as you bring a magnet closer and closer, it wipes the magnetic field or resets it. And saying, hey, we really shouldn't do this as scientists. You know what? There is a way around it. Instead of testing magnetism with a magnet, you could do it with a magnetic susceptibility meter. Now, they're much, much less weaker fields, so they don't reset things. Mm. Uh, And so they said, oh, but to get people to use this, you know, they're kind of a couple thousand dollars. So the researchers from MIT are trying to come up with a a magnetic susceptibility meter that's only a couple hundred dollars to try that, make that more prevalent. But if you ever think you've found a meteorite... Don't put a magnet to it because you could be relay, re, re, uh, resetting or erasing an, uh, a celestial magnetic hard drive yeah. of a planet where it came from. 
can't we just throw some iron filings in the general direction and <laughs> see what happens? I mean, that, yeah, you know, yeah. there's other ways to yeah. test magnetism, and I think um, um, the, the magnetic, you know, especially if it's very subtle, well, um, you know, that's that's the know, thing. Some yeah. of the more interesting meteorites aren't magnetic. Yeah, but when you put the yeah. magnet to them, you reset them. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, and uh, the chance of getting a Mars. A piece of Mars rock in that way is so low. So, yeah. yeah. Gracie, we've got a couple of minutes. Uh, what do you got? Yes. So have you all been watching The Last of Us? Yeah, I watched it recently. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Feel different about um, mushrooms now. Yeah. Keep away yeah. from mushrooms. <laughs> yep. Yes. So actually, uh, starting in about 2012... There has been a fungal infection that has been popping up in hospitals and humans. Um, not too dissimilar from uh, from The Last of Us, kind of an idea. <laughs> okay. Uh, which is terrifying. Um, so the bacteria, or sorry, the, um, the fungus is called Candida auris. So it's a type of yeast fungal infection. Um, so as I said, in, in 2012, it's kind of when it first popped up on the radar of infecting humans. Uh, it popped up in like three different continents about the same time. Um, and now it's in over 30, primarily in the U.S. Uh, I looked it up in, the, in Australia. There have been uh, four cases reported as early as 2018. Um, but after that, I couldn't find any stats on this. Uh, but basically, it's uh, typically infecting people that are already in hospital settings. So typically people um, who are already sick or uh, have like a long-term hospital stay. So it's been kind of difficult to basically determine, um, you know, what symptoms are from the fungus and what symptoms are from, you know, whatever sickness someone already had. Um, and basically it's infected over a thousand people, uh, in the U S this year. Um, and actually whenever they've tested it in people with long-term hospital stays, over 4,000 people have carried it Mm. and have not necessarily shown symptoms. Um, so, it's also becoming resistant to antifungal drugs, they're noting. So, you know, um, yeah. Sounds great, Gracie. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'll end the show on a really depressing note. Well, yeah, but. Uh, um, but I mean. Oh, go ahead. Well, with Carrier, it sounds like there are 3,000 of those infections. Their people's immune system handled it just fine. And we've had fungal infections before. Is this one special because it's got Canada in the name or because it's new that we haven't seen this in people before? Yes, so it's new because we haven't seen it in people prior to 2012. So that's the kind of the innovation of it. Um, And then also, of course, scientists are working on uh, developing other um, antifungal drugs that it would be able to that would be able to eradicate it. Sounds good. Well, we need those uh, methodologies to try and compete against the Last of Us. We don't want that show happening if possible. Thanks, Gracie. Great having you online all the way from Texas. Have a fantastic Saturday night. Thanks, y'all, to you. Folks, uh, we're almost out of time. We're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It. Thanks, Dr. Ray. Thanks, Dr. Shane. And uh, Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. A big thank you to you, Liv. You don't have a microphone because you're sitting too far away, but uh, great to have you in the show. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. And we will be back again next week, as always, with more science for you. Thanks for listening to Triple R, and stay tuned now for the amazing team from Eat It. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.